Yeah, Nolan? Two twins. <laughs> Twins End, an album. Do it, T. <laughs> T's doing a, a little shimmy over there on, across the uh, Zoom here. I, I thought I'd get, get a little jiggy with it there. A little jiggy with it. Did you notice the? I was doing kind of the, um, the Bobby Brown, my prerogative hump? There were some pelvic thrusts. By the way, by the way, that... That hump thing he did and at the toward the end of the my prerogative video, remember that one? Oh yeah. Was frightening. Yeah, I it mean, was sort of inhuman. Yeah. Were were those camera tricks or was that real? I mean Well look, know, the fact that he had the baggy like those big baggy pants on and still was able to generate the that kind of inertia, it was very frightening. I think maybe now we know why Whitney was able to put up with uh, all of his crazy antics, you know, or was she? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Welcome to episode uh, 34 here on two twins in an album. Nubs and T with you here. Checking in from the, uh, the, the dead of winter from where we reside here in the great North, lots of snow on the ground, but uh, a good time to, you know, listen to albums, don't you think, T? I mean, winter is a good time to catch up on music. There, there's no shows to go to because of the pandemic. So listen, don't give me all this winter crap, okay? You've been in Florida for like the last two weeks ish. And God bless you. But listen, you know, I've been the one truly plowing through this winter. And I believe like 72 hours ago, you were like laying by the pool, you know, with a white claw. So, you know, let's not get on the air here and start uh, talking about the, 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 you know, dead and depression of winter here. If I could just make one correction, I was by the pool actually with two white claws, not one. So just, just for the record. But uh, yes, this is all true. And uh, T tonight here on episode 34, I, let's talk a little bit about one hit wonders. Now, one, one thing I wonder about this term, first of all, it was a term that like bothered me even when I was young, like tugged at my heartstrings a little bit because I always felt sorry for artists who were thrust into that category because I always thought it was a bit insulting. You know, it's like, oh, like a one hit wonder. That means they only had one hit. And uh, it, I don't know, it just kind of bothered me, but it also created some intrigue because I always thought, well, they had one hit. They must have been okay. I wonder what else is out there. But T, I wonder here in 2021, is is one hit wonder even possible anymore? I mean, is it really even such a thing as as hits, or is there the, the the cycle of artists and the cycle of music and content is so fast now? I don't even know if one hit wonder is ever going to be a thing. So is that a term that we kind of grew up with as Generation Xers, but young kids will never hear or use that term? Or what do you think? Probably, probably because, you know, the, the whole intent of the term is basically saying these guys had other songs. In most cases, these guys had albums with more songs, but only one really broke through. And, 
they're really only known or renowned for that one tune. Now everything is so singles based that I'm not sure, you know, I think if you come out and just have one famous song, you're just that band that had that one famous single, you know, and there's a lot of those and people put it on their playlist and they're just happy. Whereas before it was kind of like, wow, this band put out either one album or multiple albums and had all these, you know, this catalog of all these songs, but only one, you know, kind of really hit the mainstream or broke through. And so, yeah, I don't think it's as um, dramatic of a, of a kind of notation as it was back around that time. What's been really interesting kind of to your point about, you know, is it a bad rap? Is it not has been kind of over the years to, to see how various artists have responded to being quote unquote one hit wonders because many of them embrace it. It's kind of like, this is my song. This is what I'm known for. How many people wish that they could go through a music career and be famous and renowned for even just one song and they love it, you know, and they embrace it. And then there are a lot of people that you can tell are dissatisfied or wish they could have had more than one hit and, and, and sort of are offended by the um, notoriety of being in this category. So that's kind of interesting. And a lot of these nostalgia festivals and, particularly we're talking about eighties band tonight, you know, you see a lot of that going on. Some of these acts get up and they play five songs and they play the moneymaker and that's it. And they have a very good time and they make a very good living, you know, by doing so. Um, there are truly, you know, bands that have made careers out of one song and, you know, shoot you and I nubs have composed some music over the years. And I mean, man, wouldn't you be happy to just have one that, uh, that made it if you will. So. You know, it's it's funny you always get into the, uh, you know, what are artists satisfied with and what are they dissatisfied with? But that's been kind of part of the fun of that whole one hit wonder sort of uh, genre over time is to see how the artists kind of respond to it. It's a good perspective. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we only think of these things as fans, you know, we don't think about the way the artists interpret that. And you're right, it can go either direction. Tonight, we really look at, in my opinion, one of the great injustices of the term one hit wonder, really one of two that stand out to me. And one of them is one of them is the band and album that we'll look at tonight. And the other is probably, again, I talk about the way that term kind of tugged at my younger heartstrings. One day I was in uh, our, one of our local record shops and was just sort of in that curious mood where it was like, maybe I'll buy something today that's a little abnormal, right? And so kind of just through the normal searches, I went into the Gary Newman area. And at this time, I only knew him for cars. And Gary Newman in America was without question considered a one-hit wonder. Well, I bought a double-disc import, the best of Gary Newman. Just out of pure curiosity, because I'm like, listen, I really like the song Cars. I love the sound. And if he has a best of that's a European import, dude must have done a few more things somewhere else. And I bought that collection and just didn't listen to anything else for like three months. I just became obsessively interested in Newman, all because of the curiosity of the one hit one piece. And so like some listeners, I think, get into it and yeah, they want to go to the nostalgia festival and just hear the song or put that song on their playlist and hear it over and over again. 
for me, there was always a deeper curiosity of, man, what else is out there? What, what, else, what does the rest of the album sound like? And, and what do the other albums sound like? And what is the album before and the one after? How did they connect? And so, you know, to, to me, it opened up more curiosity than anything else. And I quickly also realized that one hit wonder is sort of, it, it, it's, is going to sound a little like, oh, like I'm so worldly, which, you know, I'm not, but, but it does seem like a sort of American thing. You know, we, we say that about an artist like Gary Newman. Well, Gary Newman had a, a ton of hits and, you know, an incredible amount of notoriety overseas, but in America, you know, he's like a one hit wonder. So uh, that, that's one that stands out to me. Is there any other, is there any discovery that you've made uh, based on like the one hit wonder status? Oh, there's been a lot. I mean, I, I think that you, you picked a perfect example because now, I mean, and you introduced me to Newman heavily, but you know, now it's just hilarious to think of Gary Newman as a one hit wonder because you learn about two way army and you learn about not just this multi-decade solo career, but this multi-genre solo career of things that have always been synth-based to an extent, but, you know, he has tackled like five or six, you know, unique and pretty differentiated genres of music in, in throughout different albums within his catalog in different eras. So it's like, you start learning about this and when you bring him up and people say that he's the cars guy, it's just, it's kind of hilarious. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. just funny to think that they're without doing that sort of deep dive, you know, that you, um, you could very easily think that. And, and for people that think that it's not like they're stupid, they just haven't, you know, to your point, sort of taken the time to, you know, kind of jump into it. But, um, you know, there, there are some that it does lead you down a little bit of a, a, a nice, pleasurable sort of rabbit hole where you end up learning a lot about the deeper catalog or sort of the material beyond what they're famous for. And that can be awesome. But, you know, listen, there are plenty too where that one song was their one hit for a reason, you know, and you, 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 you want to appreciate and enjoy what they did further than that. And you get to the end, it's like, Yep, I I pretty much only like that one song they did too, you know, and that happens as well. So, you know, not every one hit wonder is a Gary Newman, but but there are plenty that deserve a deeper dive. And and you you brought up a very good example of one. Well, deeper dive is what we will do. And uh it'll be for our listeners who see a flock of seagulls as a one hit wonder, hopefully it leads to a discovery of this tremendous work that is the debut album. And those who are already familiar with it um, might enjoy kind of the top to bottom look at it and, uh, and try and find some perspective for this particular album from this quote unquote one hit wonder. But before we get into one hit wonders and all that good stuff and flocks of seagulls and things well, and, that we will and crazy into, hair, you know, crazy swoopy hair. Yeah. That's part, that's we'll part of this. The hair. Sure. Yeah. Can't talk about this band without talking about the hair. But before we get into crazy swoopy hair, T, let's uh, let's take things around and around and figure out what you've been listening to. Let's go around and around. <laughs> T, three albums that have been spinning around for you. Well, the first, you know, I kind of tend to stay away from compilations within round and round, but been uh, listening to a lot of old uh, Cure 
stuff. And, you know, the, the standing on a beach, um, which was the, the cassette, I believe, uh, format, maybe LP as well. And then it was called staring at the sea when it came out on CD. So it's kind of like the same compilation with two different titles. Um, uh, is a just a glorious way to revisit that really kind of early era of the cure. Always good every now and again to go back and get that. They, they did some really good stuff, obviously, toward the middle of their career. And even some of this stuff through the 90s was okay. Um, See, can, but, let me, I got to check with the judges real quick to make sure that compilation can be included. Hold on, let me check. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, turns out two two compilations are allowed. The Cure, Standing on the Beach, So You're Lucky. The other one is Tom Petty Greatest Hits. Oh, so okay. I, I think, okay, fair. yeah, yeah, those, those yeah, can I be. I mean, great. that was a, well, that was a tough to say. That was down to the wire. It was down to the wire. Yeah, there's big, big, uh, big discussion going on. I figure the judges. Yeah, I'm glad that the judges ruled in favor because otherwise I'd just, I think I would just have to quit. You'd be on your own the rest of the episode. So You'd be one twin in an album. That's, that's right. Not, and that's, yeah. uh, it's not double the fun, if you will. No, exactly. Uh, the second is an album, and this is by the group Sparks that we have spoken of before. And, you know, it's, I mean, you talk about multi-genre and a multi-decade career. These guys are working on like their 26th album. This is uh, one from the early 80s. This is a music you can dance to. And this is when they got into synth, a sort of a poppy, synthy, uh, up-tempo kind of sound, which really, I, I really like this record. I think it's one of their best. And the uh, title track is, has emerged as one of my favorite songs of the 80s. I mean, music that you can dance to is a just complete jam. And uh, also featured very, very nicely during the movie Rad, you know, during the bicycle boogie at the, uh, at the dance, you know, when Crew Jones and the chick from Full House get out there and do some weird kind of dance moves with their bikes. I mean, it's pretty amazing as the Reynolds twins, you know, watch on. And I mean... Is that the slow motion sequence? So, uh, so they come out and, uh, well, music that you can dance to is when the Reynolds twins start doing their coordinated dance and all that. And then Crew Jones uh, comes in with his bike. And uh, uh, just when you, you know, not sure who his bicycle dance partner is going to be, all of a sudden the chick from Full House rolls, rolls in. What's her name? Mary Kate. No, no, was. she was, come <laughs> she was Uncle Jesse's. Uh, uh, oh, wife or girlfriend? The hot one? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't know, but those are the, the hot one, chick. Isn't she the one that just got busted for like getting her kids into into college? Like uh, Lori Laughlin. Uh, Lori Laughlin is Uncle Jesse's girlfriend. Yeah, it's her. Oh, oh, okay. Isn't okay. she? Is she in jail? <laughs> was uh, she one of those that I did think the, She got out, but yeah, she was convicted of that scandal with the colleges. Yes. Let's see. Just doing a little, doing a little quick research here. Uh, she went to jail for two months in October of 2020. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So, um, so then they come out and in slow motion, that's when send me an angel is actually playing, but, uh, really incredible scene from the movie rad, you know, the- I don't know whether I'm incredibly impressed at your detailed knowledge of rad or a little bit concerned. It's, it might be it's a quality between. film. <laughs> and uh, and uh, let's not forget also Talia Shore, who plays uh, Crew Jones's mom. And ah, uh, yes, yes, may I say that Talia was in one of her more hot sort of eras at the time. Uh, kind of probably around that Rocky Three, 
uh, rad era where she was real hot. So I give it up for Adrian Balboa on that one. And anything else on Sparks? I think we <laughs> <laughs> we covered a lot yeah, of ground. We sure did. We sure did. And then the third one is uh, is by Kanye, who's been in the news lately. You know, he's going to be a free agent here on the market. I suppose is is the word from Camp West and his uh, record, The Life of Pablo, which is probably my favorite Kanye recording. If I had to pick one, so. What is round and round for you, Nub? Start with a new album, and this is uh, the new album from Stephen Wilson, The Future Bites, which was originally going to come out, gosh, when was it? Uh, several months ago. He delayed it, maybe, maybe perhaps thinking that things would sort of normalize, and finally released it earlier this month. And uh, it, it's pretty interesting. It's kind of poppy and lots of catchy stuff, a ton of electronics really stripped down. Nothing like the prog rock of Porky Pantry and the early Stephen Wilson stuff, but anything he does is worth it and, and worthy of support. And I'll spend some more time with it and check it out. Also uh, another new album and just to echo your choice from last week. And that is uh, the new album from Foo Fighters, which do you have any, I don't know. T, yeah, have you I'm to still it? digging it, digging in. Do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah. My thoughts are that um, I don't think it's oh, really? that good. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm still giving it a shot, but right now it doesn't feel like I would put it in that upper tier of Foo Fighters okay. album, okay. you know, but, uh, but, you know, still very worthy of checking out and, uh, and I look forward to a deeper, you know, experience with it. But uh, for now, yeah, I'm not, I'm not like crazy about it, but you know, we'll, we'll keep rocking out with it. We'll, we'll give those guys a shot. You Sometimes know, with them, you dig into the album, well, I guess, I don't know, they're all album tracks now. I'm not sure if any have been radio cuts but uh, sometimes with them you dig into the album tracks over time and start to like it more yeah exactly exactly and then third i'm um, going with the debut album from mike and the mechanics uh, from 1985 and this is mike rutherford from genesis his not his solo debut but his, the debut of this particular band and this is a really strong uh debut album it's got all i need is a miracle and silent running and um it, this is like a real peak time for all the members of Genesis. They were all kind of firing on all cylinders, uh, whether it be together or solo. And so that first Mike and the Mechanics album is something I visit from time to time and still very much. Enjoy. Well, he's also the guitar player for Roachford. So <laughs> yeah, Roachford, yes, yeah, right. which we've, yeah. which we've discussed yeah. before. <laughs> we, we certainly have. We certainly have. So as we discussed at the opening, we'll really get into this really fascinating debut album from this group that again is just pigeonholed into this one at wonder thing. And people seem to talk more about the hair than the music, but uh, here in episode 34, let's really get into the music. Well, the hair was pretty amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, I understand we we probably should focus on the record, but it was good hair. Yeah, it was pretty strong hair. There's no doubt, but um, let's learn more about a flock of seagulls in this uh, wonderful debut. As we get into the nerdy deeds, done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right, A Flock of Seagulls debut album, which is called A Flock of Seagulls, was released on April 30th of 1982. It was on Jive Records. The, the album was produced by Mike Howlett, who actually has a, a pretty strong uh, distinction in, in my nerdy prog rock world. He was the bass guitarist for a band called Gong, which was a 
really influential, very avant-garde, kind of, you know, important part of the the prog scene of the mid seventies, but sort of overlooked and didn't make a lot of noise in the U S but, but certainly was pretty notable in that scene. Mike Hallett was the bass player for that group, and he produced this album with the exception of one song, and that is Telecommunication, which was produced by the great Bill Nelson, who was the guitarist for Bebop Deluxe and went on to have a pretty reputable solo career and production career. And Bill Nelson produced Telecommunication, but Mike Hallett produced uh, the rest of the album. A Flock of Seagulls is made up of the original lineup is really the kind of cherished phase of a flock of seagulls. And it didn't last very long. They had some personnel changes pretty early on. And now if you go see the band, it's, it's basically Mike score and then a bunch of other guys that you've certainly never heard of. And they seem to change rapidly because he's kind of taken the thing over, but the original lineup is Mike score on vocals and keyboards. And he played a little guitar on this album guitarist, Paul Reynolds. And we'll talk a lot about Paul Reynolds and what he brought to the table on uh, all guitars and, and background vocals. Frank Maudsley was the bass player, some singing as well. And then Ali Score, the brother of Mike Score, played drums and percussion on the album. So once again, that's sort of the original lineup of this band. In terms of the success of the album, you know, it did very well. And it was obviously boosted by a huge hit single in Iran So Far Away. The charting singles included Iran, Telecommunication, and Space Age Love Song. The album did very well in terms of worldwide charts. It was top 10 in Canada and New Zealand and also in the U.S. It did hit number 10 on the weekly charts. And on the year-end chart, it was uh, number 63 on the 1982 year-end chart for Billboard. So very successful album. It, It sold several hundreds of thousands of copies all over, and it was certified gold in the United States for sales of 500,000 and more. So, you know, maybe not the, the, the ultimate smash. It wasn't like thriller esque or anything like that, but certainly this record did, did very, very well. And that was the thing about this one hit wonder thing T is, you know, if if you found yourself being a one hit wonder in the eighties, you still were able to sell a ton of albums. You know, this is before CD and cassette singles. Yes. They had 45s and, I'm sure that Iran did very well in that way, but people did go out and buy the album if they liked one of the songs. And, and uh, this album is a, a good example of that in terms of its commercial success, isn't it? Yeah, no question. And, and a lot of critical success too. I mean, one of the things that I didn't know before kind of digging into this was the production technique that, and I give the band credit for this too, you know, in, in addition to their, you know, production personnel. But, you know, a lot of this, uh, and you saw it on the, even the album that followed a lot of this kind of wall of sound ish type, um, approach and even Phil Spector himself, who, I mean, in addition to like murdering people, you know, spent a little bit of time establishing himself as whether we like it or not, <laughs> yeah. one of the most incredible producers ever. You know, within, on the side, he was into that. Yeah. I mean, within, you know, I'm yeah. talk about the history of music here. Um, he gave this album a ton of praise from a production standpoint. I mean, very proactive outward praise for the sound and the style and the production technique. And I, I found that very interesting, but yeah, it's, it's when you learn a little bit more about this debut, you kind of see that this was certainly something. And again, I don't know that it, this element made it all the way to the U S here, 
but um, you see that there was kind of more to it. And uh, in the way that it was viewed critically, we certainly knew that it was a commercial success and it all makes it very interesting. Phil Spector called it phenomenal. That was the exact word that he used. And um, another huge thing for the band was Robert Christo, who's, who's considered one of the most kind of grouchy music critics, you know, which it tends to be, you know, uh, in the lot of music critics, you, you kind of find a little bit of pessimism and I mean, they're critics, right? But he gave the album a really strong review and that was sort of surprising to many. And it really gave the record a ton of credibility. And the other thing that boosted the album tremendously, obviously, was um, A Flock of Seagulls won a Grammy in 1983 for Best Rock Instrumental Performance for DNA. And we'll talk about that when we get to the song. So lots of critical praise, good commercial success. The band actually formed in a relatively organic way. Mike Score, you know, certainly being the leader of it, but he was actually, uh, ironically, and maybe not super ironically, he was working as a hairdresser. And the band uh, really formed, once they got Paul Reynolds in at guitar, they started rehearsing in a room above Mike Score's hairdressing salon. And so it's always kind of this interesting thing that hair became such a huge part of the band's image. And Mike Score was a hairdresser and the band first rehearsed. You above can't make this stuff up, can so, you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So. You know, in 1982 and, and into 83 was certainly uh, a gigantic year for bands like a, a Flock of Seagulls. We've talked about the year 1983 previously and what a, what a you know, important year it was in music and MTV was coming along. And so the video was you know, hugely essential in terms of the really fast rise of this group. And let's say also kind of the quick decline of the band as well. And so um, T, are you ready to get into a flock of seagulls? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, you you know I'm always down for some '80s. You know, always. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, let's roll. Totally. Well, before we do that, T, let's hear about your a flock of seagulls experience, whatever it may be, as we get into our wonder. <laughs> All right, T, how did you uh, join the flock, if you will? You know, my main uh, story with these guys, other than, I mean, obviously, you know, um, Iran was featured prominently on my famous 80s tape, um, but it, it was actually kind of funny. I didn't really discover, you know, this band or the song Iran until kind of later. I think I was maybe in like junior high school or something. It was definitely in the 90s. You know, it was not at the time. Because this wasn't um, a super prominent, you know, video hit in the U.S. And it probably was a decent radio hit here. I mean, obviously it was, you know, it was a big song. But so I don't really remember them at all during their 80s heyday. But one of the things that was kind of funny is, and I think it was MTV uh, or maybe it was VH1 playing some old videos. Maybe it was VH1 because they used to do a lot of like 80s segments and those type of things. And um, one of the VJs I remember was saying, you know, we're going to play uh, something from Flock of Seagulls. 
And, you know, coming at you here with this video, I ran by Flock of Seagulls. And I was like, I ran? Like, why would they write a song about Iran, like the country? You know, I was super confused. And it was like, maybe it's like a political song. Like, maybe it's like, because, you know, I kind of knew at that point that there was like some strife in the eighties, you know, with the Ayatollah and with all, you know, there was all kinds of stuff going on uh, in the eighties in Iran that made it very historical, very newsworthy. So I, I was like, okay. I mean, I guess they, they wrote a song about Iran and, and I apparently was a hit cause they were about to play the video and, and then it came on and pretty much had to get into the chorus till it was like, Oh, I, I ran, I <laughs> right. ran yeah, so far away. Right. So, um, <laughs> that was the, that was my introduction to these guys. Just very, uh, you know, it's like their, their follow-up single, um, Saudi Arabia, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, exactly. you know, you get further into the deep cuts of the record and, you know, you come across a Gaza Strip, you know, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, I, honestly, that's that's kind of uh, I I didn't really study much of this of this group, and in fact, I when you said that we're doing an episode on it, I'm I was and still I'm a little intrigued as to why. So I'm looking forward certainly to uh, digging into this one and hearing your thoughts on it. So uh, that's my unwondrous flock of seagulls story. How about you, Nub? So for me, it goes back to uh, a TV show from the mid 2000s, I think quite short lived, but really a fantastic idea for a TV show. And that is a show called Bands Reunited. I don't know if you ever watched this, but um, it basically took seemingly mostly 80s, but I think some 70s groups. And it had this dude who was kind of charismatic and entertaining, and his job was to fly around the country and reunite bands that had disbanded. And so I watched the show a couple of times and I was like, okay. And one of the episodes was he reunited a flock of seagulls and the, in the original lineup. And it was one of those things where before then I had heard Iran and knew the video and kind of the same thing you were talking about. But once I watched the show, they used more clips from different songs. And one of the clips they played was from space age love song. And actually at the end, when they reunite, they play Iran and then they go kind of out of the episode playing space age love song live. And I was like, Oh, like I need to find out more about this. Cause I was into synth pop and we mentioned the Gary Newman thing, but this was later. I mean, this was like the mid two thousands. I was already, you know, well in my twenties. And so it was sort of a relatively new discovery. I, I'm just like UT. I didn't, I don't recall growing up a lot knowing about this group, but that bands reunited was fascinating. You learn that, you know, the two guys were brothers and Paul Reynolds on guitar. He, he had like a lot. Of, I think he had some stage fright and like he was a really shy guy. And the bass player was this really funny kind of, you know, entertaining guy, Frank Modsley. And so they got all these guys together and they decided to do this gig and reunite. And it was, it was kind of a warm, you know, kind of a touching story, actually, to see this group get back together and play for the first time in decades. And it was a great episode and that kind of started the intrigue and then bought the album and, and got more into the catalog. And, um, that was kind of it. So this is one of those rare things where a TV show actually 
kind of led to it. And anyone who wants to watch it, it is uh, on YouTube. Just search Bands Reunited, Flock of Seagulls, and you can find it. And it's a very cool thing to watch. It was a, it was a neat show and a great idea. So. Why didn't you tell me that before this episode? I mean, that would have been, you know, as, as the great Happy Gilmore once said, where were you on that one, dipshit? <laughs> What do you mean? You can't, you can't do your own research. (laughs) I mean, I just, you know, I would have, I would have checked it out before the, you know, during my research, you know, well, check it out, check it out post episode because I think you'll like it. It's, it's a really (laughs) cool story. So we'll do, we'll do buddy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a wonder story for flock of seagulls. So, all right, T let's prove that this band is no one hit wonder and that there are a lot more. So you ready to get into it T ready to drop the needle? Let's go. All right, let's drop the needle on a flock of seagulls. Here we go. All right, well, hey, you're going to be a one-hit wonder. You might as well front-load the album with your hit. And we're going through the U.S. track listing of a flock of seagulls, which, of course, starts with I Ran So Far Away. You know, the guy had the hair and, you know, you got the long synth intro and all those things. But honestly, T, what stood out to me more than anything else with this song is the guitar and the use, the crafty mm-hmm. use of the guitar and the tone right. that mixed with the synthesizers and the electronic drums and, and just that really sonic sound. Yeah. But right off the bat, you're just like, who is playing that guitar and why have I never heard of him before? Because what a crafty, creative part, and and what an amazing tone. Yeah, great. Yeah, great delay um, and usage of the time delay. I mean, you can see right away, right away during the first minute of the deal, why the production of this record was so adored because the layering taking place there. I mean, those synth parts are just perfect, you know. Um, and it really builds nicely. You know, I know that the, the hook is really key and, you know, and, and a lot of what is remembered as part of the song, but the way it, that, that, that first couple minutes of just synth intro and the way it kind of builds toward these verses, which are great, just a little haunting, you know, just great verses that lead into a really memorable chorus. It's a, it's a hell of a song. Uh, and t- sure. The whole damn song is a hook. I mean, the verse yeah. is a hook. You know, when you think about, I mean, count the hooks, right? We've done this before. The the never thought I'd meet a girl like you is a hook. You know, meet a girl like you, hook. And I ran, hook. And then I had to get away to hook. I mean, it's like the song is just packed with memorable hooks, you know? 100%. And, and you know, this was something you did at the time, you know, that you 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 knew that you needed a heater on the deal and you, you go and, you know, jam a bunch of hooks and a bunch of layers into a track. And, you know, it's it certainly there's, they did not save this for two or three 
you know, they wanted to come right out of the gate here with what ended up being not just an eighties heater, but a, but a classic song that, you know, that still uh, lives alive and well very much so today. And we've talked about kind of the, the, um, the role of the guitar solo in songs. And, you know, there's Ingve Malmsteen, you know, and then, and there's Steve Lukather from Toto, but the role of the guitar solo in this song is just so perfect, you know, and it's, it's just kind of screaming in it's simplicity and it's not overstated and it's not, he's not shredding, you know, Paul Reynolds didn't shred or anything, but there was just something about the way he played. And especially in this solo, when it climbs at the end and builds back into that last verse, I mean, it, it's kind of magical, you know? Yeah, no question. It all works on Iran. You know, there's, there's a lot going on, a lot of layers, a lot of different parts kind of merging together, but it all works. Well, I, I think it continues to work on track too. And uh, wow, I'm just going to say one of my favorite songs of all time, track two, Space Age Love Song. I mean, just hearing it again, it, I, I, you know, <laughs> listen to this song a million times in my life. It still like gives me chills. I, this song is so emotional yeah. for something that's so driven by machines. You know, I mean, it's electronic drums, it's synthesizers, you got heavily treated guitar, but there is something so human about this song. And I, I don't, does it have the same effect? In you? I mean, I, T, I, I just, this song, like. It's like moving for me. I don't know, yeah, man. I, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you mentioned it during when we were talking about mixtapes uh, during the Q&A that this was a, this was a strong mixtape favorite for you. And I, you know, I, I see why, you know, um, it's a, it's a fun song, but very emotional, you know, and, and musically uh, and lyrically, I think, you know, I'm a huge Angels and Airwaves fan. You know, I think the stuff that Tom DeLonge has done um, with that project is, and you got to give it up for Elon Rubin too, is remarkable. And it's basically this song. And oh, just, dude, super, <laughs> super influenced. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's an amazing call. You're totally right. Yeah. And they just basically like took this song and have made like six albums out of it. But <laughs> has, have they ever cited a flock of seagulls as an influence. Cause I'm telling you that the, it's a great call. The comparison is pretty uncanny. I'm sure Tom, it Tom's really good at doing that. I, you know, he's never been one to lack appreciation and, you know, praise for those that have influenced, you know, the, the, particularly the angels and airwaves project, which was something that was very experimental. You know, I know that he's mentioned, you know, you two and, and some other, contributors toward that they, he sh he should include these guys because i mean that's a i mean they, they've put together some very good original work but th this was in a way that delayed guitar and the synth treatments that complement it you hadn't really heard that or you hadn't really heard it produced in such a way where it kind of came across the way this does. And I agree. It's a beautiful track and boy, coming out hot with Iran, not the country and 
Space Age love song right on top of it. I mean, shoot, that's almost... I almost think they maybe should have separated these out a little bit because <laughs> spread you know, the wealth. Yeah. Well, how the hell do you like maintain that moment? I mean, that's that's like you know a team coming out and like hitting their first seven threes uh, of the game and only being up like by three. It's like, oh man, like how are they going to maintain this? So, I mean, they're just burying them from the corner here in the first two tracks of this record, the first you know nine minutes and boy, people must've gotten through this and maybe it was hard to go just flip back and restart it. Cause you want to hear those two songs again, but uh, <laughs> they definitely put the pressure on themselves in these last, you know, eight tracks to sustain this, but man, that is coming out about as hot as you can uh, in, in for a track one and a track two, not just, not just in pop, not just in eighties, but in all records ever. Oh, dude, it's like dude, this is like this is gonna be the best album ever. You know, like there, there are two things to dissect. I, I think that again, like Iran, it, it, it's I think it's the, the emotion comes from the guitar, and you've that that section with the dee 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 dee, dee and then when it climbs, it's ridiculous. Again, it's, it's so good, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, this band just found a way to like take melodies and then elevate them. And then elevate him again. And that builds towards the outro too. And when the outro kind of gets a da, 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 that kind of thing at the end with the buildups and, and then it just ends beautifully on this last note. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the perfect song and see, I'm going to make the call. I'm going to say Dolly Willie rule on this one, buddy. I mean, to me, any genre, uh, any style, any voice could probably take space age love song and, and make a hit out of it. What do you think? Can we go with the Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson rule that, uh, that Dolly, and Willie could have made a hit out of this song. It's high praise on two twins in an album. What do you think? Um, well, are you talking like Willie with like an acoustic guitar? Or are you talking like Willie singing over the backtrack? So that's a good question. If I was, no, definitely not Willie singing over the bad track. I'm thinking Willie acoustic guitar and some light drums behind it, doing more of a slowed down version of it. Uh, Maybe. I mean, I don't think it's like a genius composition of a song. I think it's just recorded extremely well and produced extremely well and layered extremely well. So I don't know. I don't I don't know if the rule would apply in that case. Now, you could have anybody sing over this backtrack and it'll be good because the musicality of it is just so amazing. But I'm not sure. That's that's one I might have to disagree with you on because I think this song is probably more about the layered production than it is uh, it being a brilliantly composed song or a brilliantly vocalized song so okay all right i think you make, i think you make a strong argument i still would like to hear that you saw your eyes oh it'd be great to hear made yeah made me smile you know just hear <laughs> willie just you know yeah. what about Do uh, dolly could kill it though now dolly could sing it right over the right over the dolly back, would kill it and willie would be so high who who you know who never know the <laughs> right. yeah exactly exactly well yeah it's quite the one-two punch it, i don't i don't know that a an opening two-song run gets a whole lot better than that t but one of the things that i do want to think about here is how many 80s songs had the word love in the title? You know, it's like, you know, I, I think out of all the decades of music, I'm guessing that the 80s had the most songs, certainly the most hit songs with the word love in it. And so had was, to. Had right? to. Right? I mean, don't you think? So 
I was wondering, what would you say? We haven't done a top five in a while, right? So what would you say sure. is your top five songs of the 80s with the word love in the title? And I'm not going to include Space Age Love Song because it's very obvious that would probably be my number one. So let's just get that out of the way. So I'm not going to let you include it either. Okay. <laughs> but let's say, let's say the other top five songs of the 80s with the word love in the title, and let's alternate back and forth. So why so, don't you so, go, go first? So full transparency, we, we did discuss this in advance because, you know, this is one of those questions that takes a little bit of research. So with that, I will declare that uh, coming up with five was just absurd. You know, shame on you for limiting it to five. There's no freaking way I could get this down to five. So I, I do have um, eight and a half. Uh, if that's, a, if, if you, you could check with the judges again, but I, there's no freaking way I, mean, I could go five and three and a half honorable mentions if you'd like the cosmetics of that better, but I, there's no way I could get this down to five, buddy. Okay. Let me check with the judges. Cause I, okay. I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I don't know about this one. Okay. Judges are saying a top five with three honorable mentions is fine, but you gotta make, you gotta get it down to five. That's the whole point. You know, come on, man. You know? All right. Well, the, well, I appreciate yeah. that. We'll, we'll, uh, well, it's a, don't appreciate it. It's the judges. Yeah. Our, it is. our judges yeah. table is yeah, very they, active. They're, they're, they're two for two tonight. They are certainly. So, all right, let's go with your first one. What do you got? Well, this is a pretty obvious one. This is your love, you know, by the outfield Canadian group and probably properly argued a one hit wonder. Um, but you know, that one's kind of a no brainer. What's your first? First of all, great choice. I love pun intended, your love by the outfield. But my first one is going to be from 1980. And that is love will tear us apart by joy division. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Classic song. Absolutely. All right. What do you got next to you? Well, let's go little David Foster on this one, right? I mean, there's no way he doesn't crack his way onto this list of 80s song with love in it. I mean, come on, but uh, this is uh, 1986 off of the album. 18. All right. And this is, will you still love me for the rest of my life? I got a lot of love and I don't want to let go. Will you still love me for the rest of my life? Cause I can't go on. No, I can't go on. I can't go on. If I'm on my own. Oh God, I'm crying. No, I'm crying. That's my favorite right. Chicago song. And it, it was on my list. I'm not going to say it now because I don't want to double up, but that was on my list. Will you still love me by Chicago? I, that is honestly my favorite Chicago song and amazing trivia question. Lead vocalist, Jason chef. He was brand new in the band. He's the dude who took over for Peter Sotera on bass. And they're like, here, dude, you get to sing this song. And it ended up being the biggest hit on the album. So there Great you go. Great call. Great call. All right. Well, we're going to say that one is for both of us, too, because I, I absolutely adore that song for sure. Ugh. All right. Next one for me is from 1986 as well. Big year for love, I guess. And that is uh, Higher Love by Steve Winwood. Mm. Now, I want to make sure you know that that's the album version, not the radio edit. Okay. I want the full album version. I want the long okay. intro. Mm -hmm. The long outro, I want the full middle section with that whole thing. Yep. Don't give me that stupid radio edit that squeezes it down to like 
three and a half minutes. I want yeah. the full on album version. You want large breads. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Higher yeah. Love by Steven will come on. I mean, okay. that'd get much better. All okay. right, T, what's your next? Well, I'm going to go to 1982 here and uh, a little something brought to you by a good man named Jeff Osborne. This is On the Wings of Love, watching the two of us together flying high, flying high above the wings of love. Let's do the middle part. Because you were bad for me. I'm yours exclusively. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, Jeff, Jeffrey Osborne. <laughs> so George Duke uh, played on that song. He also Ooh, produced yeah. it. Legend. Absolutely. Part of what makes it great. Uh, Michael Sambello, who's a maniac, in case you didn't know, um, played guitar on that song. So, you know, you had kind of a strong personnel on that one. And uh, yeah, Jeffrey Osborne on the wings of love. Yeah, I love that choice. Love that choice. Well, I should say you do. And what year was that one, T, again? I know you said it. That was 82. Okay, we're going to stay in 1982. And all I need to say about this one is just do, 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 do. And that would be love. Oh, so good. I have that one, too. Great call. Oh, that song is so good, man. Like the the outro. Ah, who? oh man that is so good that is such a great song the outro is killer but the low end of the chorus is like yeah and the drums like go into this like thing on the toms like it's just yeah. really well done it's a great pick song. i actually was yeah. thinking um when i picked that one as well i was like i think i'm gonna get him here i think i'm gonna this is gonna be one of those that i'm gonna pick and he's gonna be like oh that is a great freaking song but you know you're all over good for you T, what do you got next? 1983. That is love is a love is a battlefield. Uh, Pat Benatar, I, I think this song is so good. You know, the the whole like atmosphere of it, you know, super uh, well-written, well-produced, obviously, you know, Neil Geraldo nor Pat Benatar wrote it. It was a Mike Chapman song. So, I mean, this is one that came from the pros, but uh, I don't know how much you love. I mean, obviously we cover this song, so, you know, it's something that we've always, I think both thought pretty highly of, but yeah, this makes top five for me. I, I love is a battlefield is strong. I always thought it was okay. I did, definitely didn't like it as much as you did. But uh, I mean, probably one of the better Benatar songs, but that's not saying a whole lot, right? Because I don't know know how many good ones there were. I know you liked We Belong to. I know that. Well, there goes the upcoming Pet Benatar episode I was planning. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, let's uh, go to 1983. And this would be some that, again, some people might incorrectly cite as a one hit wonder. And he was not. But that would be Howard Jones with What is Love? Okay, nothing. Hojo, always a good choice. Produced by Rupert Hine and Howard Jones, one of the great, you know, synthesizer kind of one man does it all type of artist. Rupert Holmes produced that? Really? Rupert, Rupert Holmes. Holmes, wow. Who knew? Sorry, yeah, Rupert Hine. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a little sorry. difference there. Yeah. All right, T, uh, let me check my abacus. Okay, I'm showing one. Uh, for, well, I've uh, got three. three. Um, so. Can I just let me go? Just, just say them all. Well, I'm going with 1986. Is it okay 
to double down on David Foster. That is that all right? It feels a little weird, but I mean, the guy is a world class dick. But yeah, go right ahead. Yeah. So this is uh, Glory of Love, Karate Kid Two. Oh, Satara. Uh, yeah, Satara. Which I mean, wow. I just I I love this. Song. I think this song is held up so well. You know, as most. I mean, David Foster is a pretty interesting. I I would agree with you. Rather arrogant, interesting cat. Um, but there is no question he knew how to put together a song and uh he put together a great one here for karate kid 2 glory of love peter satara nubs what do you got what's your last one i i, I need a calculator to figure out did david foster have more grammys or more wives hey hey <laughs> very nice Trick on the team. Ah, there you go. <laughs> all right last one for me let's go to 1988 and an album called OU812. And the song is When It's Love by Van Halen. How does it get any better? Yeah, When It's Love. Great choice. Great Van Hagar there. All right. I, so, what you have. Okay. So, like, you have honorable mentions now that you got to give. Well, I, I, just, get I, I do have two that I just. I, I, all right. Just love quickly. To the judges are getting very antsy over here. Well, so, please. The first is Ola Moore. Okay. All right. I okay. I got it. Yeah. Right. We're counting French. On yes, Francais, amour means love, does it not? <laughs> okay. All right. I like it. And the second is I'm cheating because this is from 1990. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. That's a okay. 90s well, song. Regardless, it's Stevie B because I love you, the postman song. One of my all time favorites. I, I mean, it, what an incredible list that comes to a thunderous crash. How dare you? But you pick up a, How dare you? Picking a song from 1990 and it happens to be by Stevie B and it's the postman song. But you know what? See, we're going we're gonna to go with it cuz um I could I know what that song means to you. So I don't I don't want to I don't want to remove it from your list. I mean, come on, come on. Because I love you. I'll do anything I give you my heart My everything Because I love you I'll be right by your side To be a light To be a guide Oh, God I mean, come on Seriously, Nub? You're not down with this? Um, <laughs> I'm speechless. You made just you, you actually speechless. made fun of me for this. I mean, shame on you. Just listen to it. Just listen. I mean, it's, I mean, it's 1992. Rules are rules. Isn't it kind of close enough? Like if you on the curve, it stills sort of 80s. This ain't non smoky. Rules are rules. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that, that was a good list. Yeah, I, that, that was, um, it does go to show you, right? Like how many eighties hits had the word love in it. So it was the decade of love, if you will. Oh, what song are we on? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. We're on are track we on, three. Are we on track two? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's continue on with the album. Track three 
after the incredible one-two punch go, uh, continues with You Can Run. It's quite 80s. got a nice little drive to it. Good little driving song. What, what do you think of You Can Run? Very, uh, very Newman-esque. You know, there's, there's some of that going on here, um, vocally and with the synth work and those type of things. Um, yeah, it is a nice driving track three, certainly, um, bit more uptempo, a bit less atmospheric, you know, more kind of straight driving pop. Uh, it's good. Yeah. The middle album definitely settles into, you know, a little bit more of that, that pounding, uh, groove, if you will. And it continues with don't ask me track four. Some good bass on this album, don't you think, T? I mean, and, and there's a lot of synth going on too, so sometimes it's hard to tell what's bass guitar and what's bass synth. But you know, I think Frank Maudsley and uh, and Mike Score have a nice little, nice little complimentary thing going on. Yeah, with it's got line. a nice chop to it. Um, you know, it's quick and snappy. I mean, these you know, track four, track five, and track six are all sub three minutes. So, you know, they're um, getting after it pretty good and, and pretty to the point. I do like the efficiency of this album. It's, you know, 10 tracks and songs that aren't um, drawn out for the sake of it. I like the idea of efficiency. I think that's true. You know, th- there's not a lot of waste going on here and there's not a ton of like over tracking either. You know, each member, you can really ch- pick out um, the voice of each member in terms of them playing their instrument. And as we mentioned, a really crystal clear sounding production. So side one concludes with messages. So T in the mid two thousands, there was this whole throwback sound, uh, to, to this type of music, Franz Ferdinand and Radio Four and um, the Strokes mm-hmm. and some of yep. these bands. I'm like, can't you can't you hear that in messages? Kind of that offbeat hi hat oh, yeah. thing and the big loud like. Yeah, it was kind of like what you were hearing from like Madness and from Men at Work and some of those you know kind of groups around the same time that were a bit more kind of unique from a, a pop sensibility standpoint that brings in some rhythmic things. So yeah, I think this is a this is a pretty new wavy track, pretty unique when you, when you put it in the context of all 10 tracks messages is, is kind of a neat way to close up the first side. Flip the record over and kick off side two with the song that I, I think the band would tell you is actually the track that they thought was going to be not just the lead single, but the, the biggest hit on the album. And you could sort of see why, I, you know, I ran as a very unconventional hit single. Telecommunication is something that sounded more like it was intended to be a hit single. So let's kick off side two with that telecommunication. Telecommunication, telecommunication, telecommunication. 
everything locked in nicely there. Again, I think you got terrific performance from Paul Reynolds. Remember, this is the song produced by Bill Nelson. You can sort of hear that just in the textures and everything. It almost sounds a little bebop deluxe-ish. But uh, I don't know, T, do you think this, this is one of those that maybe should have been a bigger hit? I think it's very good. I'm not sure. You know, it's very repetitive from a hook standpoint. So it's, it, it really didn't, I don't think, scream radio hit around that time but it's a really good album track and and there's some good kind of sweeping actions taking place with the synth and with some different rhythmic things that are really nice um so you know i i think it 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 gets a little uh hypnotic with the chorus of kind of telecommunication over and over again and um that probably kept it a little bit from being something that you could kind of hook and sing along to, which was more of the kind of idea back here in the front half of the eighties. But, uh, it, it's a great kickoff to uh, side two and, and yeah, really, really strong track on the record. I really like what they're doing musically in a lot of areas, um, of telecommunication for sure. Trek seven is interesting because on the UK release and some of the other worldwide releases, it's the opening track. And actually, if you ever see flock of seagulls, which I'm lucky enough that I have, it's always the opening track at the show, and you can sort of oh, see why nice. when you're listening to it. And that is Modern Love is Automatic. It's a killer show opener. It really is. And pretty good little album opener if you're looking at that other track listing. But this song kind of has the drama and it builds and builds and builds. And by the end, Mike score is, is singing, um, you know, a lot of passion in his voice. And, and again, just the way this band was able to take a lot of kind of more metallic sounds and make them really tangible and make them really human, I think is what, what stands out. But uh, it, it really works well as an album opener i'm sure there was some conflict on whether to keep this as the opener or go ahead and open with iran but this is an album that's almost cursed with two true opening tracks on it yeah i definitely see that it is a nice show opener i mean it's one of the better guitar tracks on the record there's a lot going on there with uh some palm mute stuff and some chop stuff that that really adds a very nice dynamic to it and then obviously you know there's kind of that main part uh, in between vocal segments that, you know, provides you to come with kind of that lead melody. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a nice guitar track. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know that about opening the shows with it, but it certainly makes sense for sure. And, uh, the album continues here on side two with track eight standing in the doorway. Yeah, again, man, it's it's just the guitar. I mean, it's such a it's such an underrated guitar album, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I didn't realize it until, you know, going track by track on it for this purpose. But it really is a good guitar record. You don't you don't think it, you know, but getting the and I think that's part of what Phil Spector and others that have that production mindset liked about it is oftentimes you know, especially around this time, getting the guitar to kind of work together with all these different elements could be difficult. And if you did it wrong, it would sound like you're kind of forcing 
something into the mix. Whereas here, you know, they were able to take these guitar parts and either structure them in certain ways or, or play them in certain ways that either made them kind of a chop to accompany a certain beat or a um, delay pattern to kind of accompany a certain synth route. You know, I mean, they, they just were very smart about getting this guitar effect and these parts to really help the remainder of what was taking place. Because frankly, you know, if, if this was synth only, it would still be pretty cool. And if it was guitar only, it would be pretty cool too. But getting all those things to kind of, you know, it's like pieces of a puzzle to kind of all work together. They made it look pretty easy on this record and standing in the doorway is a good example of that. But that's not really particularly easy. That takes a lot of thoughtfulness from a composition standpoint and certainly a production standpoint. I think that's why you saw a lot of the acclaim from a lot of different, you know, not critics, but actual music producers that know what the hell they're doing that gave this a lot of praise. And it it just gave so much space to the sound as well. Because to your point, nobody's doing something that the other a player is doing, you know, everything complements and everything is sort of adjacent to what their fellow musician in the band is doing. That created a really open, spacious sound. I think that's why people love it. So speaking of why people love it, we're, I'll ask you to, you know, did DNA deserve the Grammy or should they have given the Grammy back now? You know? <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But uh, you sort of buried on side two in this album is the Grammy award winner for best instrumental performance. And that is DNA. All right, see, what do you think? Grammy worthy? It's really cool. I mean, it's really cool. This and it holds up tremendously well. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, you know, even if you're not necessarily into more of a proggy, synthy, poppy type sound, I mean, this is something you you pop on today and it's like if somebody were to go in their basement and DIY a track like this out, you'd be like, man, that's really good, you know. So um so yeah, I think I think it was deserved. I think, you know, to at that time, uh boy do I miss these days when bands like this actually were awarded and acclaimed and all that. But it's it's very cool that they got it for a two and a half minute instrumental that, you know, is the second to last track on the record. Uh I would guess they wouldn't be expecting that. But yeah, they put together something really nice here that even all these years later holds up well. I mean, I, you think you think they deserve the Grammy? I do. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a hell of a composition. It's got great flow, pretty outstanding atmosphere. I, I got to tell you, too, I have such warm memories of this song, literally. I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but uh, I, I taught eighth grade English. And one of the writing exercises we did, we called it the sound review. And that is that every Wednesday, which was sound review day, uh, I would play for the students a different instrumental song and they would write to it and they would write, you know, the imagery that that song brought up. And it was a great writing exercise, but it was also so much fun to, you know, expose these students to all kinds of music. And I, so you were like the coolest teacher ever by essentially (laughs) what you're saying, right? 
Well, I, you know what, man? Like I introduced so many young eighth grade students <laughs> to Brian Eno and Rush Ugh. and, you know, just stuff that they, you know, students will still write me today and say, oh, you know, I would have never listened to David Bowie if you hadn't have played, you know, Warsaw in, in class. And, you know, and that's so, called, that's called doing the Lord's work, buddy. <laughs> right. And so, um, DNA was part of the sound review series and it was near the end of the year. It was like one of the last three or four that we did. And I, I remember cause the week before we did tubular bells part one and it, I built it up the whole year. Like we're going to do tubular, and it was 24 minutes and they wrote for 24 minutes to the whole tubular bells thing. And the stuff they wrote was incredible. And the week after that nice. it was, it was spring and it was, warm out and the sun was always shining and we would do DNA and the, and it was just a fun day. It was, you know, Oh, we're doing DNA today. Great. Yeah. And uh, the students would always write nice flowery things to it. Cause it was late in the school year and everyone's yeah. food. And yeah, yeah. And I, I always think about that every time I hear it. You know? That's cool. That's awesome. For sure. So that brings us close to the close with track 10. And that is the closing track on a flock of seagulls. And this is man-made. Nice dramatic closer. It reminds me a lot of Vienna by Ultravox. Just even the drum pattern, I think is. I think this. I think this came out before the Vienna album, but um, it's sort of eerily similar <laughs> to that amazing song from Ultravox. But um, yeah, Man Made brings the album to a close. What do you think of the way it closes? It's cool. You know, it's longest song in the record, and really pulls it all together as far as a lot of the different elements, some great percussive stuff going on. You know, again, it's just a record of all about layering and all about making multiple layers and multiple sounds in some cases that are sort of uh, leaning in different directions, you know, all work together. Man-made does that really well. All right, T. Well, let's uh, get into a little analysis here as we look at a flock of seagulls and we'll start with the, uh... The simple question, does it matter? T, what do you think? Does this album matter? I, you know, I don't know that it does. I mean, clearly this band was known for this record, but really I, I think they were just known for the first two songs, you know, more than anything. And, and they're dynamite songs and, and they're the type of songs where, you know, a band should be known for multi-decades for creating because they're classics and they'll probably live on forever and deservingly so. You know, I don't, I don't hear a lot about this record being terribly influential i mean you probably should more and maybe when you get outside of the u.s it is mentioned more in those circles clearly the praise that you hear from specter and from some others um from the kind of standpoint of appreciation for the way it was put together is notable so i think it's one of those that probably you know did matter quite a bit within certain circles and it's it almost seems like maybe it was kind of a musician's type album, you know, even back in those days of one where if you were able to kind of appreciate the layered nature and some of the production elements, and certainly there's some great songs on it too. I mean, I'm not discounting the composition, but this record's really as much about the sound as it is having just extraordinary songs once you get past the first two. So, you know, I, I think again, you get through track one and track two and you think you're about to hear 
like the greatest album ever made and the rest of it's pretty good, but I think it's, it, it's tough to sustain that kind of energy tracks three through 10. They did a good job of it. They created something that I think mattered for a lot of music types and a lot of musicians, I would guess. Um, but, but critically you don't hear uh, about this record a lot and maybe you should hear about it a little bit more. Um, but I don't know that it, 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 it really mattered or even sticks out within kind of eighties pop critical review, you know, probably the way it should. So I would say probably not really, but boy, you got a couple tracks there that'll live on forever. And that says something, you know, in of itself. So what do you think Nub uh, on, on, uh, did it matter for flock of seagulls here? I think creatively it matters in a number of ways. Number one, I will tell you, I think it holds up extremely well for an eighties album. I mean, Oh yeah, it does. <laughs> you know, how many eighties albums do you go back and listen to? You think, Oh, you know, I have a hard time getting over the keyboard sound or the drum sound is mushy or you know, the vocal production is, is over-processed or under-processed. Yeah. This album just sounds so fresh. Yeah. It's a great point. You know, and that gives it a unique part in eighties pop music. Cause I think that I, I really believe that as somebody in 2021 can listen to it and go, Oh, that's, that's quite good. That's quite interesting. And um, that sounds like something I can enjoy today without the caveat of, Oh, that's eighties or anything like that. So I think creatively there's a lot of aspects of it that matter. I, I don't think commercially it has a lot of um, importance. You know, because there was just so much music during this time and so many hits and the little exercise we did with the love thing, it, it shows you. I mean, the 80s was saturated with tremendous, tremendous songs and albums. And so I don't know that like it's got a huge commercial place like mainstream, but I do. I agree that musicians and artistically inclined people who want to reach back and find something that isn't overly analyzed too. I think that's the one of the advantages of this record is it's not over-explained. It's not over-examined. Um, you can discover it and feel kind of like, oh, that's cool. That's different. And it's not like something that everybody knows. And we all know that there's some appeal in that for people, you know, that if you kind of discover something that's a little bit of a secret. And this album is is a little bit of a secret more than it should be, you know, because I think it goes back to the beginning with that one-hit wonder unfair status that we talked about. So IT, let's go with uh let's go with the final cut for a flock of seagulls. So T is a flock of seagulls on the turntable. Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it in the for sale bin? T where's a flock of seagulls for you? A real tweener here for me. So you cannot put this in the for sale bin just based on the first two songs. You just can't. I mean, they're just too good. Um, I, you know, I'm hesitant to put it in the collection just because, you know, it's tough tracks three through 10. I mean, there's some great moments, but it's tough to keep up the expectation and the pace that you get on the first two. Um, some of it does start to sound a little bit the same. Um, now if you really kind of get your ear into it and dig into the, some of the complexities of the different layers and different parts, you realize that it's more creative than it sounds at times. But if you're kind of casually listening you know, there are moments where it all starts to bleed together a little bit. I'm going to go collecting dust, you know, kind of for that reason. It, it's very close to for me for being in the collection because I do think it's one of the better 80s records, you know, out there. Um, and it came from kind of the early front half where 
the production really stands out because it sounds like, to your point, it sounds like an album that could have been made five years ago, let alone an album that could have been made in like the late 80s or early 90s. Like this is made in 1983. This is before a lot of these production tricks and techniques had really, you know, sort of materialized. And they were the first to kind of capture a lot of this stuff. So mad respect for that. It was very close for me for being in the collection, but I'm going to go collecting dust just because if you get to tracks three through 10, it becomes really hard to sort of continue that ride. But there's no way you put this in the first sale bin um, based on the respect for the production and the overall sound concept and the first two tracks. I mean, goodness. So where do you got it now? I'm interested. Final cut. I've got it on the turntable, but maybe not for the reasons you might think it's not because it's so complete. First of all, it does have three or four of the best songs of the era. And with space age love song, in my opinion, maybe even the best song of the era. So that gives it a tremendous amount of ability to, to enjoy it. Right. But the reality is that the biggest strength of this album is that there isn't one thing on it that was overplayed. And you can't say that for a lot of things from the eighties, you know, like if you throw on Duran Duran Rio, it's hard to still take the song Rio seriously. It's used in every eighties documentary and, you know, but this album was not overplayed. Even yeah. Iran, it really wasn't. It wasn't one of those type of hit singles. It was a little more off the beaten path and just a, a hair more obscure for us growing up. And so the, the thing I love about the album, why it's on the turntable is its peaks are, are pretty incredible. And you can listen to them frequently because you haven't heard them to death, you know? And, and that's, again, like we said in the analysis, it's like, um, it's still kind of a little secret you know, this album, it's still something that, um, hasn't been abused to death by the mainstream. And so therefore you can enjoy it more and more top to bottom. And, and that's why it's on the turntable for me. It's more about its freshness than its completeness. And the album remains incredibly fresh and very vibrant for sure. All right, T. Well, I, I listen, fun to go through that. And we talked about one hit wonders. So Let's see if there's any true one hit wonders in your, in your head as we look at what is in <laughs> your head. Well, we're not going to get Dolores twice. Oh, there. Okay. Okay. I just want to make sure. All right, T. Yeah. All right. Three songs, T. What do you got? The first is by the Bee Gees, but this is not 70s Bee Gees. This is 80s Bee Gees. You win again. Great track. Probably one of my eh, top 10, 15, I would say for sure. Songs of the 80s. You're a, you're a true champion for that song. Great you pop BGs. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Great, great lip sync performance at the American Music Awards too, which we had on VHS. And you always wanted to fast forward the BGs doing you in again. I was like, no, leave it, leave it. I like this one. <laughs> You're like, this sucks. I'm like, no, it doesn't. Um, the second is a, you know, I've been on a kind of a nice streak of, of love ballads here. This is also 80s, and this is Melissa Manchester doing a little Don't Cry Out Loud, you know? <laughs> Come on. Wait, is that, is that the, uh, Don't Cry Out Loud? 
Just okay. keep it inside. Don't let it hide your feelings. Fly high above. A lot of singing this episode. Wow, right? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, come on. It's a, it's a great track. I, I do like some Melissa Manchester. You should hear how she talks about you. It? It's a real jam. Oh, God. Great, great yeah. song. Uh, and then the third, we're going to go with Nickelback here doing Lullaby, which is beautiful song one of their best and uh you know always good to pull out um when you're when you're kind of wanting to feel it a little bit because that's a you know we've talked about emotion a lot on this uh, episode i think that's a track that's got quite a bit of it. any anyone who tries to claim that you know nickelback is uh staticky and formulaic and unemotional just listen to lullaby so there there's my there's my pro nickelback statement for episode 34 on the deal here so uh what do you got now <laughs> i've got uh on the backs of angels by dream theater a band that i'm sort of in a rediscovery phase of and this was the first track they did without mike portnoy on drums and it's been a rather mixed bag from dream theater since he left the band and uh this that would be considered one of the high points for sure last night on earth by u2 off the pop album 1997 one of the great singles from that really over looked album and in my opinion my favorite of all u2 albums well as you've made clear on the old podcast here u2 you're very picky about it so i'll take from this that pop was a your your pro pop in the nubs picky youtube catalog oh pop is to me their best album by far and those who hate on it they can uh i got no place for them really but yeah i love pop they can they can bite you is that what you're about to say (laughs) that's right exactly exactly so (laughs) Yes, I am very pro pop for sure. And I'm also pro Ryan Adams. And it's good that he's come back and recorded a new album. Not crazy about the new album, but I still love the album Cold Roses and the song If I Am a Stranger. Yeah, I'm sure it's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you still don't get the whole Ryan Adams thing. Sure, it's a real classic. Yeah. All right. Well, that is what is in our head. And what's going to be in our head for a while is telecommunication, telecommunication. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. So, T, thanks for your thoughts on of Seagulls. Enjoyed it. Always great to pull pull some 80s love. Love. There you go. Another key theme to this episode. But no, enjoyed talking about it, man. Love it. And we will see everybody for episode 35. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. We'll see you next time on Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.